Sounding Board, the monthly podcast from new and classic music discussion since 2016. Follow the team on Twitter and Facebook at Sounding Board 69. Welcome to episode 35 of Sounding Board. This month, this Amy and I are here. Amy, welcome. Hi. And today, not at all mimicking the podcast with John Karamanica, we're Ooh. actually going to have an episode which is quite Robin heavy. And I think that's partly because Robin actually didn't get that many mentions in our Scandinavia episode which is a few a months ago. I don't know what we were thinking. No. And we'll also quickly skirt over the fact that we none of us had heard of Avicii at the time. And then two months later, it turns out he's like one of the biggest pop stars ever. <laughs> but anyway, before we get into Robin, and we're going to also be exploring the issue of, say, pop stars as auteurs which I think is related to Robin and her career and how she maybe could be compared to some various other people any news any news well I mean this isn't so much news yet as so much as about an alert to possible future news Taylor Swift I know I'm always banging on about Taylor Swift but Taylor (laughs) Swift's record deal is up for renewal in the in the next few weeks this is going to be the first renegotiation since she was an unknown, she's, she's still signed to Big Machine Records, which is a Nashville-based country label, which she's totally outgrown. And I'm looking with interest to see what's going to happen about that. She's been really loyal to the people that she's worked with in the past, but also she's powerful, obviously, one of the most powerful people in the music industry, and she's prone to game-changing moves. Let's not forget that she wrote a letter to Apple, and then Apple changed their streaming royalty oh, rates they, as a mm. result. They didn't... <sighs> I don't even remember, remember the details. They weren't paying royalties for streams that people were streaming during the first three-month period of subscribing. She wrote a letter. She told them they couldn't have 1989. They said, oh, okay, sorry, Taylor. We'll pay all the artists now. She's very powerful. So she's prone to these game-changing moves. So, you know, I mean, this is kind of related to what we're going to be talking about today. She's, Taylor's a very astute manager of her own career, and she's not afraid to challenge industry machinery in that way. So she has the potential to create a sort of blueprint for artists to follow in the future. Is she going to stay with this country label? Is she going to negotiate possibly the biggest deal in music history? Or is she going to do a Robin and go alone, form her own label? You know. Let's watch this space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Uh, From my point of view, it's not so much news, but I just wanted to mention a new podcast that I've discovered, which... uh, Mike Gibbons is on the pod, has been on the pod a couple of times, talking about Britpop and the noughties has brought to my attention and that is one called Chart Music. I don't know if you know it. No. But uh, they take one episode of Top of the Pops from the past and they sort of pick it apart at leisure. And when I say at leisure, it really is at leisure because do you want to have a guess at how long each episode is? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Well, an episode of Top of the Pops is 30 minutes long. So, I don't know, 45 an hour? Uh, No, actually, they take... About three and a half hours over each one. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, people like Simon Price, the ex-Melody Maker journalist, are on it, and he's extremely funny on it. It's extremely funny. It's an an excuse to kind of jump off and talk about kind of politics and culture of the time, but always in a very irreverent way. Mm. Lots of swearing, lots of inanity, 
but really highly amusing. Yes, you need a bit of time to listen to an episode like A Ferry to Ireland, which I happened to do last week, but that's not really a subject for the podcast. But apart from that, uh, definitely recommended, extremely funny. And I think they've mainly covered episodes from the 70s and 80s, which, let's face it, was the heyday, really, of Top of the Pops. I mean, there's been one 90s episode, I think, which was very good, but I think by then most of us had zoned out and had stopped watching it, really. So, mm. so uh, yeah, very good in that's a kind of close reading kind of way. A great idea. Nothing distills a moment in time quite like Top of the Pops used to, you know? Like, we're a poorer country without it. Yeah, yeah, that whole water cooler thing of, like, the next morning. And that's one of the things they ask at the end of the podcast, like, what would you have been talking about in the playground? And, mm. and you know, you've got all sorts of things. And But even yeah. when you go on to iPlayer and you play in a, you, you, you play episodes from 1985, not saying I do that regularly, but I do do that regularly. And just everything about it, like, the artist, the music, you know, the fashion, the dance moves, it's just... It's amazing. It's just like it's a it's a it's a moment in it's a moment in time in aspic. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely is. So that's chart music. So look out for it. Definitely worth if not subscribing to at least dipping back into the back catalogue if there's a particular year that you remember fondly and to see what the modern take is on it. After this break, we're going to be talking about pop stars as auteurs, segueing into some discussion of Robin and her new album, Honey. <laughs> Right, for want of a better word, we're going to explore auteurism as a, as a potential idea and, and how awkwardly this often sits in pop. You know, how much should an artist be seen as being in complete creative control of their music? We've talked in the past about, on the Elvis pod, about how Elvis hardly wrote any of his own songs mm. and how he was still, still to this day, probably the biggest pop star of all time. Mm. So it's not hurt his reputation. But over time, I think that kind of changed. And, and I think we're particularly interested in getting to the nub of how things stand at the moment because I think it's a bit up for grabs this at the moment really in terms of yeah I do think the culture is changing I mean particularly at the moment Honey has prompted a lot of think pieces that explore her unique position this this big mainstream pop star that functions like an independent artist with control over her direction and output and so that's got quite a few people thinking about pop music's complicated relationship with authenticity and creative control Obviously, the idea that music should spring from the well of an individual's creative vision is like a rockist one and something of a myth. Even most rock albums are shaped by the hand of a producer, sometimes to the point that, you know, the band don't even recognise what they're listening to when they hear the album. You know, when you listen to, you know, the members of uh, Joy Division, Now New Order, talk about unknown pleasures, they're like, oh, it's awful, I don't like it. So, you know, this isn't unique to pop. And popular music auteurs in the truest sense are really rare. You have to almost go back to someone like Phil Spector or Brian Wilson. But it's a kind of romantic idea and it's got a lot of power to it and it sort of persists. And the music industry is famously manipulative, obviously. So mainstream output is often by design rather rather than by inspiration, especially when there's a lot of money involved. So artists that have been marked for greatness frequently lose control of their art and become subsumed into this machine. And on the other hand, you know, whilst this artistic vision myth it persists and influences artists' credibility, and the industry is, industry is sensitive to that, and it panders to it when marketing artists that may simply be great performers, but there's a sense that that's not quite enough. So the result of all of this is a culture in which artists who want creative control can't get it, artists who don't have to pretend that they have more than they do, nobody wins except the executives, and fans are looking on in total confusion and lack of trust because they're constantly lied to about something that's actually really important to them. But is there a case that 
because music, particularly these days, and particularly even going back to Brian Wilson, which we discussed on the Beach Boys pod uh, mm. two years ago, music is so complex. It's, you can't do it on your own, can you? I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to do it on your own. So we're not no. talking so much about someone like having complete control over things. We're talking about more direction. You know, so someone like, I don't know, Beyonce. I mean, I think you've always argued that she has got that kind of overseeing power over her music I mean would you yeah you well know. like well pop music is a, a collaborative medium mm. and most popular music outside of pure pop is a collaborative medium as well and people like Beyonce I and mean, Beyonce is an interesting example because she is someone who is in control over her creative direction and she does write but she also employs a coterie of, of songwriters and, and directors and she is almost and she's a and producers. I mean, she produces the producers almost, but she doesn't always get the credit that she deserves for that process because it's always assumed that there's somebody else behind the scenes pulling the strings and that she can't possibly have that kind of agency or or creativity behind her. But she very much does. So in that way, she's kind of weirdly, despite the fact that she probably is the the most lauded pop star of our time and an icon, she's weirdly underestimated in that way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. And and is that something to do with the fact that she might just be female? <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably fair to say. I mean, yes, women are much more likely to be underestimated in that sense and to and for it to be assumed that they don't have that agency. And why is this? Well, there's a lot of institutional misogyny at work. There are few women in leadership roles in the music industry, and this reflects really deeply held biases around women in leadership and on the other side from outside the industry listeners are less likely to find female artists credible and less likely to believe that they're in control of their career Mm. and you know women are maybe more likely to be selected for stardom due to attributes other than creative agency so they're very young they're very hot um, they're easy to control in the case of pop music and of course it's very mysterious it's very hard to know who is pulling what strings because it is uh, not an honest industry and not a trustworthy industry in many ways. And so unconscious bias tends to fill in the gaps there. So is there sort of like this dichotomy between artists that have a clear signature? So Robin, who we're going to talk about in more length in time, Kanye West, Taylor Swift, who you've already talked about earlier on, versus artists that, as you mentioned with Beyonce, but also maybe with Bjork, manage a collaborative process are both valid? I mean, I would say they probably are, yeah. Both are completely valid. I think there's a lot of, maybe I think there's kind of misunderstanding on behalf of people who listen to music as to how the process works, because the question often is, yeah, but do they write their own music? Obviously, it's so much more complicated than that. And there are, you know, there's a lot more moving parts than simply who's writing the melody. And there's a lot of different approaches to creating to making that creative output obviously not even just about the song and the song has enough different elements to it itself I mean you've got somebody like Taylor Swift she has she is a kind of classic singer songwriter who has a very strong songwriting signature you listen to her songs enough you you can you recognize them from thousand paces and there's actually a really really good episode of switched on pop about those those signatures it's a podcast by two musicologists who looked at at her her output and and talked about this so she is she's got certain songwriting fundamentals completely down but she collaborates on adapting her work for pop markets and she does have a very very clear perspective and voice in that way but then uh, then Kanye West is probably the closest thing that we have 
in our current time to a true auteur. Like, he will just disappear into a basement and then come out with something that just is almost unintelligible. (laughs) (laughs) And it's nobody's vision but his own. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Robin is a collaborator in many respects, just like Taylor is. But she also does have that very clear, you know, there is a signature Robin song, that crying in the club, you know, the sad banger, the crying on the dance floor, the kind of glittery synth pop that we we associate with her and that has been so, you know, imitated since. She also has a signature style. But then there's other people like, I mean, Beyonce we've already talked about, but Björk actually, Beyonce and Björk actually have a lot in common in some ways in that they are managers of their own output. They are the creative directors but collaborate an awful lot and both of them have not had the credit that they deserve but being able to take the disparate parts from input from you know various different people and then to integrate that into a whole that works and you know that sounds sounds like your authentic voice is just as challenging i would say and absolutely just as valid. i mean i also think madonna's interesting because madonna isn't exactly she's not exactly a songwriter but she is in control mm. you know she's in control of her own career she's in control of who she works with and when she's in control of the the image the story and the narratives that she puts out but she is another creative director it's just that in terms of she tends to identify trends and identify the right people to work with to to get in on those trends but that there's a savviness to that and a creativity to that as well yeah so would you say that creative control despite all this is back as a marketable selling point (laughs) Uh, well, this is another this is this is another struggle that you you have sometimes as a as somebody who loves pop music and really wants to take it seriously as an art form. You've got this tension between these stars that are very creative but are often underestimated, and then you've got these other pop stars who, because management and the record label understand that an artist is going to have more appeal if they are credible they will negotiate for songwriting credit on their on their album to push them forward and to create a narrative around narrative around them that's a person's in control of what they're doing and i think that i think that that's particularly pertinent that's probably happening more now as a result of the political climate and the me too movement we're very keen to see particularly women with agency now and we're probably less we have less respect and less tolerance maybe than we used to for somebody like Britney, who actually, you know, you have to respect her honesty. She's never pushed for songwriting credit. She's actually got integrity in that way. Mm. But we have that expectation now. So you Sigrid, the Norwegian kind of up-and-coming star. I mean, mm. where do you kind of stand on her in this firmament? Yeah. It's interesting because I know that came up in the recent New York Times podcast who said that she has a narrative around her in which she was set up with a group of songwriters who were patronising and denigrating to her and she sat them off and she went out on her own and found her own collaborators and now she's writing about that and that they're not entirely sure that there is much validity to this because she seems like a very sweet, mild-mannered person who wouldn't necessarily do that. I actually don't know much Sigrid, um, Mm. but it sounds like the kind of thing that might happen. You know, looking back to the noughties when MySpace was a thing, there you had all these people, you know, like Lily Allen was an example. So they they were all launched via MySpace. Yeah. And there was this story that this there was this kind of grassroots campaign, this fan base that had sprung up on the internet completely organically. Mm. And that was BS, obviously. That was BS. And it was, uh, it, it was exposed as BS after some time. Mm. Yeah. You know, that I think I think that the current equivalent of that 
is this pop stars that are launched now with the story behind, with the story that they have been writing for very famous pop stars for years. Oh, well, they've, been, they've written songs for Rihanna, so you should take them seriously. Hmm. Well, maybe that's true. I hope it is. Maybe we just need to forget about any issues of authenticity and just let the waves crash over us and just decide about music on its merits, whether we think it's good or not, or whether we yeah, like it or not. And I mean, that is like a, a kind of optimist state of mind. And, uh, and the, the idea that somebody needs to have, that something needs to, to kind of come from a, a, an individual's kind of creative mind is a rockist idea and did originate with the Beatles, basically. Yeah. And maybe now out of time and we should forget about it. But I, I still think that <laughs> if you if you go out in the world and you talk to people, if you look below the line on the Guardian, you can see that there is still a lot of cynicism, and that there is still an expectation that if you don't write your own songs, then you're not proper. After this break, we'll be moving across the border from Norway to Sweden, lip syncing as we go. <laughs> So welcome back everyone. That was a slightly shorter discussion on the main theme than usual simply because we feel that this month's album, Robin's Honey, which has Yay! been released quite late on in 2018 and Finally. could well be the last big album of the year. Robin is a fascinating figure because I think she kind of exemplifies a lot of the things we talked about. So I think we're going to sort of get into that a bit more. And before we talk about the album, I think we want to talk a bit more widely about Robin as an artist. If you don't know her, do you want a sort of little potted sort of guide to Robin? You know? Rob, well, Robin is a pop star from Sweden. She debuted in the mid to late 90s. I think her first album, listeners of a certain vintage might remember Show Me Love from 1997. At that time she was working with Max Martin. Max Martin offered her an ongoing record deal. She turned that down. He went on to offer that to Britney Spears. She then went off to do her own thing and it very much was her own thing. After a few successful singles in the US, she decided that she couldn't do things the way she wanted to do things. And she extracted herself from that machine, went back to Sweden and then released, well, set up her own record, her own record label, Kanichiwa Records, and then released Robin in two th- uh, her self-titled album in 2005 and it was a kind of very sort of idiosyncratic very sort of skittish twinkly very personal very emotional synth pop that didn't sound like anything else and she's been really just plowing her own furrow ever since and she kind of exists in her own lane there isn't really anyone else anyone else in her lane that's not uh, you know not to say that other artists haven't tried but she to go back to her offer from Max Martin Max Martin obviously evolved from the kind of the 90s sort of R&B that Show Me Love kind of exemplified to work on some, you know the, the the very big bombastic pop hits of the Backstreet Boys and Britney in the late 90s early noughties and that sort of represents the road not travelled for Robin. And and I think when you look, you could set up a kind of Robin versus Britney dichotomy and look at the ways in which their career trajectories have panned out and really have all the more respect for Robin having made the choices that she did. And you can understand why pop stars have, have tried to emulate that and say, well, you know, I'd rather go down this path than that path, especially if you're still culturally relevant in 20 years' time. Well, I think you're kind of hinting there at one of the reasons why Robin is one of those artists who in the pop landscape who 
me, even as a hardened indie kid or indie middle-aged man, has always had a bit of time for. And it isn't just because she's gone off on her own and the authenticity of being on her own label and all that kind of thing. I think for me it's quite a lot to do with the backing music because I see the backing music as being rooted in that kind of icy, icy I know is a cliche when you're talking about Scandinavian artists but anyway early 80s synth pop landscape so I'm thinking Eurythmics Sweet Dreams and Here Comes the Rain I'm I'm thinking you know Heaven 17 I'm Mm. thinking Human League I'm thinking A New Order even you know that that Mm. kind of sort of really really sparse sort of synth pop but, you know, taking it very much to a kind of mainstream audience again, you know. And I, and I think that's the reason why I like it. And the fact that on this album, which will Joe Mount from Metronomy is involved, yep. is yeah, probably telling them, as I think they're a band that kind of exists on the cusp of Indian pop, you know, sort of, you know, Metronomy yeah. certainly. And then she's also collaborated with people like Reichsop, who again, you would yeah, put into that category. Sure. So, yeah, yeah The Knife yeah, very much. So, I mean, obviously she's podcast. like the kind of, you know, the well-behaved older 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 sister of the knife you know the one who doesn't hang out on street corners taking drugs <laughs> so it's i think but you know incredibly similar actually in lots of respects yeah. i think particularly kind of you know the knife of tracks like heartbeats and things like that could have been a robin song yeah. so i think you know i think that's probably why i even this hard and indicate like like me i think that's one of the reasons why i like her i mean how do you see her as a unique figure in the in the pop landscape well i mean she's unique because she is so autonomous and so mainstream and that can't be easy to achieve, I guess. She's also very rare in that she she isn't afraid to make music that is sensual, but she's never been objectified as a woman. I think that's I, it's, that also must be difficult to achieve. She's always sort of forced male gaze elsewhere, and as a result, she's, she's never been judged by it, so she's kind of almost allowed to play by different rules. And she has this kind of very idiosyncratic, but still, still totally amazing look. Her kind of her amazing fashion choices, and she looks like a real person. She's been allowed to age like a normal person, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people find that really inspiring. You don't see very much of that. Certainly, Madonna didn't do that. No, no. <laughs> and again, yeah, she's still relevant. She's still relevant now. I mean, none of these things can be easy. To achieve and all of this, you know, gives you just all the more respect for her. It's not easy to to be to mean so much and be so popular with so many different demographics and still be somewhat avant-garde and not to compromise because she doesn't pander. Yeah, she doesn't pander. I mean, she really is a role model, isn't she? Yeah, 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 and some. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to. Uh, yes to her fans very much so but also to other pop stars you know there's you know nobody's crying for the pop stars they're fine but it's not that easy as a career it's a punishing schedule there was a article in the guardian quite recently about pop star burnout you know it's in it's it's a real problem it's a real problem it's a you 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 do not have a work-life balance you have very little agency you're under public scrutiny that must be horrendous and you've got a very short shelf life (laughs) very short shelf life so robin has managed to circumvent all of that you know she makes one album in eight years and she can afford to spend six years in psychoanalysis and then release an album about it which is what honey is and still be a really big deal when she comes back that's 
that's that's why a lot of pop stars are now asking for the Robin deal, just like comedians pitching TV shows used to ask for the Louis C.K. deal, but no longer do for obvious reasons. For various reasons, yes, yes. <laughs> so you've talked about Robin as an aspirational figure for wannabe pop stars, and that tells us quite a bit about the heavy toll the established route takes on stars. I mean, who are the particular people who you think have tried to mimic Robin in, in, in the, their career choices? If you look at any Scandinavian pop star, you you can probably imagine that they have been pitched as the new Robin. Sigrid? Yeah. Sigrid, yeah. Yes, yeah, yes yeah. there was um there's a there's also there's a pop star called Oland who was also selected to have a song appear on an early episode of Girls, as was Robin. Yeah. A lot of these artists have had featured songs on girls interestingly mm, yeah but yes they yeah she is uh, for those uh for not just synth pop pop stars but for any pop star that wants to gain control of their career yes yeah yeah i think so i mean i can see it sort of all the way through music really and i think it is refreshing because i think the knife who we talked about earlier on i mean i think i i, I love their first three albums and then the last album has got some great stuff on it as mm. is the fever ray album which we reviewed this time last year actually mm. Uh, you know, really good stuff, but they they kind of disappeared a little bit down the experimental furrow, I think, and yes. the weirdness furrow, and you know, like the odd track still reminds you of that kind of pop sensibility they had before. Yeah, and and so I think it's necessary to have these artists. I mean, I, I mean, it's not a million miles away, but someone like the Pet Shop Boys, I think, probably sort of li- exist in this sort of mid ground. Oh, think, I as completely well. agree. Yeah, yes. you know, I mean, yeah. of, of like managing to hit that sweet spot between pop. And be incredible, you know, they, they've yeah. never really lost that credibility. So. They've never lost that credibility, but they lost relevance, and Robin hasn't. Yes, yes, that's right. Maybe by, you know, waiting a few years. And uh, to talk about that, we've mentioned this new album, Honey, Eight Year Gap. Um, she's not really been away, though, has she? Because she has been, I mentioned the Royksop collaboration and various other collaborations she's been involved with. She had a, she lent vocals to the most recent Metronomy album as well, which uh, on one track. So you right, know, she has okay. been doing stuff, but, yeah. but I, and there's many more things, I think. So she has been collaborating, but. Uh, In the dance club space, more yes, so. Yes, yes, that's right. But this album, it's dropped on us, you know, we're mm-hmm. towards the end of the year 2018. And, and that's another thing I think that's significant. I don't think releasing an album in the last two months of the year is an intuitive thing to do if you're going for sort of, you know, massive, full-on commercial publicity because often people have, like, formulated their kind of top 10s or top 40s for the year already. It's, it's quite late mm. in the year. Mm. And so I think that shows that she doesn't really give a monkeys and, like, she's just putting she her music out because she's happy with the album. I think we agreed to me it's been very well received hasn't it the album you know it's sort of like by yes, almost it all quarters it so, has yeah. been well reviewed critics have liked it fans have not always been so full on about it because it is so sonically different so sonically different I mean you know if you love Robin for the sad bangers then it's likely to be quite a jarring listen at first as it was for me because the first track Missing You is very much in that vein it is a sad banger but then you know that's a bridge and then the rest of the album's kind of a departure from that sound and she kind of goes off on a tangent and explores themes of separation from her partner grief due to the death of her longtime collaborator Christian Falk died of pancreatic cancer and she was in years of psychoanalysis and this album is kind of a diary almost of her working through that sense of loss and grief and then coming to a place of happiness and looking forwards at the end. You know, she, it's, whereas the kind of, that very 
Scandinavian sound that you referred to, Rob, that glittery synth pop. It's very, you know, it's it it makes her sound in some ways. I mean, I know that she's the queen of heartbreak, but it also makes makes her sound like an invincible. I mean, her the first track on Body Talk is called Fembot, and there is a sort of invincibility to that sound. But this album sounds organic. You know, it's warm and the beats have the feel of heartbeats and it sounds spacious and there's a lot of imagery around oozing substances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's the sound of like a, a, a person exploring their inner self at their own leisure, basically. Some people are going to like that. Some people are going to find it boring and long for the pop music, you know, because it's not really pop music. It has the feel and pattern of dance music. And the club is obviously a really important place to Robin the club and dance music is very important to her. She's talked in promo about this idea that dance music isn't about the destination or peaks and troughs of pop song structure. It's about kind of getting lost in the groove and there's something meditative about that. You know, images and metaphors kind of repeat themselves over different tracks. So you can't really, you can't go in expecting old Robin. You can't go in expecting pop songs, really. You just have to kind of set back and let it envelop you. You have to stop searching for the bangers and sort of let it wash over you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a beautiful synth pop album. I mean, I think this is quite telling, really, because... For me, maybe it isn't that much of a surprise that someone like me would like it because it, it's it isn't it's full retro. on pop. Yeah, it's <laughs> it retro. retro. It isn't full on pop. It's introspective, mm. you know, and it, it's thoughtful and all the things that I'd like to think that most of the music I like falls into that category. Yeah, and doesn't overstay its welcome. It's pretty short, forty no, minute it. album. Yeah, and yeah, as a whole, I think it works really well. It's 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 mm. a really good album. I think coming into individual tracks was there anything any that have really stood out for you you mentioned a couple already but anything that you yeah I mean the second single Honey is a standout and this has got quite a lot of attention already because it featured on the it featured at the end of a last season episode of Girls it was a different earlier version that sounded more like old Robin more twinkly more synthy and you only ever got 30 seconds of it and so it was just agonising we finally finally she couldn't put it down this song it was like her white whale she just kept tinkering with it and so the final version sounds really very very different as I say much much more organic but very very beautiful and and a kind of yes a a song it's the sort of the turning point of the album in a way in which she finds peace with herself and then after that moment the album sort of starts to look forward and she goes out into the world and goes to Ibiza and has a party on the beach and then claims to that she'll never be broken hearted ever again in the last song to which people like me who love her sad bangers go no Robin please be broken hearted again <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think for me I mean honey I would agree with also liked ever again the last track I think the, the two which step outside Rob Langham's favourite music are really kind of the seventh and eighth tracks uh, between the lines and Beach Two K Twenty, which uh, for That's, me uh, Beach Two K Twenty is weird. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> a little bit two eighties maybe for my liking to kind of mainstream poppy. Although there is some uh, weird stuff going on with kind of you know voiceovers and between the lines is very sort of yes that nineties nineties pop house sound isn't it? Yeah. It's very very retro sounding. Yeah, but um, overall great piece of work. And actually, if you listen to this, as a lot of our audience are from a real fortress of indie dumb, <laughs> then do 
if you want to sort of step outside that for a, for a if you want to tiptoe out of your, the indie bubble Robin is a great place yeah, to start I, I've done it and I'm, I'm showing the scars you know but yeah. I think it's you know I've, I've done that at various points in my sort of musical listening life and you know, I've always found it sort of pretty rewarding for the most part anyway just as I did with the Cardi B album earlier in the year I think so so uh, so yeah I think uh, overall I think we're giving it a big thumbs up highly recommended and we should warn you that next month December 2018 we're going to be somehow trying to piece together our top 10 albums of the year maybe Robin's got a chance of getting into that we shall see no spoilers no see you again soon I'm Rob Langham thanks to Amy again for coming in thank you you can follow us on Twitter at SoundingBoard69 and we'll be back in just a few weeks interact with the team at at soundingboard69 on twitter and facebook